This episode of the podcast is made possible by Santa Cruz Medicinals. Santa Cruz Medicinals makes potent CBD products. One of my favorite products is their CBD tincture. I take three drops before I go to bed. It helps me with sleep and it helps me with muscle soreness. And lately I've been getting jacked at CrossFit. I did that. I'm one of those guys. I'm a CrossFit guy now. It's I like it. I gotta say, it's nice. I feel strong. I feel healthy. I don't go too crazy on the weight, but shit, it makes me sore. Uh, and I notice a difference when I take this CBD tincture before I go to bed. I feel more recovered in the morning. And the founder, Brendan, is a podcast alum. Uh, he's been on this show a couple times. Very interesting dude. And uh, I just love Santa Cruz Medicinals. And you should too. So if you want some CBD in your life and you want a discount on it, head over to scmedicinals.com, type in the code name KYLE10, and get 10% off any order. Again, my favorite products are their CBD tincture as well as their CBD coconut oil that I love lathering on my skin and it keeps me soft as a baby, a baby full of CBD. So head over to Santa Cruz Medicinals, scmedicinals.com, type in the code name KYLE10, get 10% off. This episode of the podcast is with a badass adventurer and... We had a great time. This conversation just kept getting better and better. I felt I didn't I had never met him before we sat down and I felt like there was this experience of like becoming friends on air uh which are some of my favorite kinds of podcasts. Stephen Page was raised in San Francisco. He's a surfer, diver, builder, and adventurer, of course we'd be friends, who recently completed a solo 840-mile kayak trip through the coast of California. He witnessed firsthand the beauty and environmental issues we face as a state. Stephen is committed to ocean activism and raising awareness about our shrinking kelp forests. He's currently co-creating a feature-length documentary and media project titled The Last Forests, engaging stakeholders and the greater public in the future of our kelp forests and what we can do to help them recover. Uh, this was a tale of adventure, and I dare say it will make you want to go out into nature and test yourself because it certainly did for me. Um, Steven's also, I think, sorry if I get this wrong, I think he's 23. I didn't know that until after the podcast. I was like, holy shit, dude. You're a young lad who's doing big things. So I hope that you enjoy this podcast with my man, Steven Page. And here we are with the uh, kayaker extraordinaire. 840 miles, is that right? Yeah, it was 840 miles, yeah. And you kayaked from, where did you where did you set off? I started at a place called Chrissy Field in Oregon. It's probably about three miles north of the border. It's kind of like the first place you can access uh, north of the California border, California-Oregon or border. So I took off there on August 5th, and I finished on October 5th. So it was 60 days exactly. Nice. Yeah. Solo trip. Solo trip. Um, no, didn't kayak with anyone. I had a, a buddy join me for one day, um, which was really cool. But other than that, I was alone the whole time. So. What kind of kayak were you using? 
it was it was actually kind of interesting. I kind of went through the different options when I was obviously planning this trip. Yeah, you and don't want to wing it. Yeah, you don't want to wing it. Um, and I actually ended up settling on, weirdly enough, a Hobie kayak that had um, catamaran holes on the side. Okay. And I did that for a couple reasons. I am not like a super gnarly sea kayaker. Um, and so land, like... I think one of the big things about this trip, like the sketchy parts, was is landing, um, especially in swell. Because you can flip over. You can flip over and, you know... F- Yard sale, lose all your shit. Lose all your shit. And that happened to me later in the trip, and it was a, like a disaster. I mean, it was a complete... I thought the trip was over. Um, I think I lost, you know, I lost like hundreds of dollars of gear and broke... We can get into that later. Yeah, so when you are landing on one of your beaches, are you in the kayak or do you get out and try and guide the kayak in? Yeah, so I chose a sit-on-top Hobie kayak um, because for me, like a big thing was I wanted to be able to bail and like, yeah, basically bail if I'm coming in through Big Swell. Because I knew if you're out for two months, you're not going to get lucky every day. You're going to have to land somewhere you don't want to land. And so I picked a... I picked a kayak that I could, I was a sit on top kayak. And so if I did get into situations where it was sketchy, I could get out and kind of guide it in or or just get off of it. Or just swim in. You know, even um, on little days, I've Mm -hmm. gone out in a kayak that I have, Mm -hmm. go cruise around the kelp beds. And I, on one occasion, I was going in and I was riding a small wave to the beach and the kayak turned a little bit to the right. And it started rolling me and I had to duck and cover and it rolled me onto the sand. And I thought, dude, if I wouldn't have ducked and covered right then, I could have mm-hmm. broken my neck. Oh, yeah. And especially I had so much gear. My kayak was probably 200 pounds with all said and done. And that snapped your leg. Yeah, it was it was pretty sketchy on some landings. And so, yeah, I chose that set on top kayak and I actually did have the bail on a couple. There was one. I mean, there was a couple where I actually fully yard sailed and. That's the story of it. All right. But. Well, let's get there. Let's let's take the trip. Uh, let's take it from um, why you did this trip in the first place. Mm-hmm. Was there a conversation that you had with someone, or did it come to you in a dream? What's the origin story? The um, there's a couple kind of different things. It was something floating in the back of my mind. I'd say from the first time I got on a kayak, like in in college. Um, me and my buddy did some spearfishing trips in Big Sur um, and kind of got into that. And the more we got into it, the more we wanted to get away from reefs that get um, dived a lot and places where people kayak fish. So we started really pushing the limits of how far we were willing to take it. So there was a couple times we hiked our kayaks like down a trail, like dragged them on like a, like a goat track down a cliff basically and then would kayak three miles into a reef we've been scoping for a long time and I remember um, we did that several times and I I remember every single time I would be coming back you know kayaking back north so we you know kayak south kind of with the current and with the wind and coming back and just wishing damn I wish I could stay out here I wish I could I wish me and Sean had a you know a tent and a sleeping pad and we could just camp on the beach and do it all again tomorrow and that was definitely incentive and i was like okay i kind of want to do some kayak touring also I, kinda... I wish i could just keep going south so i didn't need to go against this fucking <laughs> oh wind my, and current oh my there was there was one time we had we you know we hadn't dove in 
you know, four months or something. So we, we were out of fish. Our freezer was not stocked. We were like, let's, let's shoot some fish. So, we, you know, we probably shot about 40 pounds of fish, kind of varying species, a couple uh, sheephead, a couple rockfish, a couple lingcod. But then we had all this weight and the kayak was actually like struggling. We were going back north and we're like, Jesus, we're going to get in. And we ended up getting in at sundown, hiking our gear back up this cliff. And it was like nine o'clock by the time we were like driving away <laughs> and we were just like, Oh my type so, type two fun. Yeah. Yeah. There's type one fun. That's fun while you're doing it. There's type two fun. That's shitty while you're doing it. Then you look but, back on it with reverence. Oh, absolutely. And, and the other cool thing, um, that kind of did prepare me for the amount of gear hauling on my trip. Um, that was something that I didn't really think about, but then ended up being almost one of the gnarliest factors was how much gear you need and how much stuff breaks while you're out kayaking. I mean, like my marine radio died on day four. I had a GPS that died on day two that I ended up getting a like replacement for, which was fine. But uh, my rudder lines broke by day 40, two of my rudder lines. The pin holding my rudder ended up breaking in that um, when I flipped. What are rudder lines? So the kayak has... Um, in normal kayaking, just if you're out on like a little, you know, plastic one from, you know, wherever they don't have a, they don't have a rudder. Mm -hmm. And so it's totally fine if you're in a bay, whatever, but on ocean kayaking, you really need a rudder. A lot of times there, you steer them with your feet. My kayak had one that had like a little tiller next to my hand and it really keeps you on track, especially when it gets really windy. It's really scary. And your boat wants to, uh, turn sideways into the wind, um, so and flip and flip yeah exactly so that the rudder is almost necessary and how big was the hobie that you were on it was 16 feet okay it was 16 feet exactly so i'm guessing you're on the back and then there's all your gear up front yeah i had it i had gear up front inside the kayak and then i also had some gear like my food in the back so it was i had it kind of balanced to try to make it plain the right way and that kind of took some, the first couple of days were kind of funny about that. And did you have all your food netted down around the front? Um, I had it, well, the stuff in the front was like my dry gear, like the stuff I had to keep dry or else I was going to have like miserable night after miserable night. And that was up in the front. And then in the back, I had my gear netted down. Yeah. What kind of dry bags were you using? I was, it was funny. I went into it and I talked, I don't know if you've heard about the Higginbotham brothers who did. I've had them on my podcast. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. They, they're legends. Yep. I talked to them before I went on my trip and. For they, people who don't know, they did a prone paddling trip from the border of Alaska to the border of Mexico. Yeah. It was yeah gnarly. Savage. Yeah. Yeah. We had a tequila laden podcast. <laughs> I remember getting really high during that one. It's hard to keep them under control. <laughs> yeah, they're, I want to have them back on. I think that they're doing a, a movie now about their trip. Yeah, it's coming it's, out soon. It it just premiered down in Santa Did Barbara. It? I didn't I didn't have a chance to get down and there. And they had Chris Malloy and some people from Farm yeah. League help produce it, right? Yeah, it's it's legit. I really want to see it. And those guys were super nice to meet up with me. I Before my trip, I reached out to them because I was living in San Luis Obispo, and they live in Pismo Beach. So I reached out to them through a friend um, who knew them, and they actually sat down with me and were like, yeah, man, here's the reality of what you're about to do. I don't think they actually thought I was going to do it. And they probably don't even know that I finished. I didn't, Sick, you know, we'll send them this podcast. Yeah, yeah. I never really um, posted anything about it. I kind of 
never had a blog, never had any of that kind of stuff. It was more. So, so what was some of the most helpful advice that they gave you regarding gear? And we can get into the specifics too, because yeah. if there's sick gear, I'm happy to talk about it because people should know about it. And yeah. when you're in one of those situations, you don't want shit that breaks. Yeah. Um, as far as gear, um, they were like, everything is going to get wet. So everything, you know, that's like main thing. They also said, obviously have a Marine radio. Sadly, mine broke on day four and I didn't really have the money or like the wherewithal to try to get a new one. So I went without a Marine radio. That was, I would not suggest that to anyone. By the way, if you're looking to do a trip yeah. like that, um, and I, there was an instance actually coming around Point Reyes. I'll just go on the Marine sure. Radio hype. Why you should have one? Um, probably on my gnarliest day of the trip, it was like 36 miles I covered that day, from Bodega Bay down around Point Reyes and then up into Drake's Bay. Uh, really gorgeous stretch of coast i got lucky with the weather that day it was the wind was supposed to come out of the south that day and i was kind of like preparing for the trip to be over like i thought that day was gonna like actually and you know end me because <laughs> that's just blowing right into your face yeah right in, and that was 30 36 miles is like the limit of what i could do in a in like sun up to sundown so i just didn't know if i was gonna make it in time but i'm come anyways i got lucky the wind didn't come up there was um, a great white shark buzzed me that day, like right outside the Tamales Bay entrance, which was heavy. Uh, <laughs> but then anyways, I get down, um, to the tip of Point Reyes, which is like well known as one of the gnarliest, basically little zones in California. I mean, it's, it's outrageous, like the current there and, um, everything was really heavy, but coming around, I'm about to enter Drake's Bay and I'm like at the tip, very tip of point Reyes, and there's i come across a flipped kayak like a like a kayak that was overturned the paddle was about 20 feet away from the kayak and it's drifting in towards the rocks and i i it's it scared it scared the shit out of me because because i've been out here alone i haven't seen a single i saw one kayaker in in um off of shelter cove up, up in the lost coast one other kayaker who was out fishing, but other than that, I hadn't seen a kayaker all like my entire trip. So the, and the second kayaker I see is like an overturned kayak. No one, I didn't know if there was someone inside, someone like going to be like lying face down in the water. So I kayak up and the first thing I do is I try like I stick my paddle, I stick my paddle under the kayak to make sure there's not someone inside. So once I realized there was no one there, I was like, okay, so where's, where's the body? Like that was the first thing that I could think of was where's, where's the body. And I look in and there's just like a maelstrom of rocks and waves breaking. And I mean, I, I didn't know. And there was a little beach just to the, to the South. Um, and I'm like, maybe the guy got there and I take out my binoculars. I'm checking it. There's no one on the beach. And I look at the cliff and it, it looks pretty much unclimbable. Maybe if you were a good climber, like a good rock climber, and you were down to free solo, like you could get up it. And I'm like, this this guy's dead. I don't know where this guy is, but I didn't have my marine radio. And that was a big issue. And I was like, if I had my marine radio, I could call the Coast Guard right now. And I didn't, but I did take down the coordinates on my GPS. I wrote them down. And I went into Point Drake's Bay. So I rounded the finally rounded um, 
Point Reyes, came into Drake's Bay, and I went to, there's a little lifeboat station there that's owned by, I want to say the National Parks or something like that, and there was people there, and one of the guys had a marine radio. He, I asked him if I could use it. I radioed in. I called, I actually called in a helicopter, called in a rescue. They got a sheriff helicopter from um, Marin County, came up. They did like a bunch of passes. Um, I sent them the coordinates. They checked it out. They were like buzzing super low to try to like see into some of the caves. They couldn't see a body. So they called off the search and I'm sitting there like, Jesus. So then I just decided, okay, like I've done what I can do. Keep going. And I kept going and I ended up camping right next to Drake Sestero that night in, a, in like a driftwood hut and having, a, it was a nice night, but I was like pretty disturbed. Like that was, that was really gnarly. Like, I don't know what happened. In that yeah. Guy. You don't know if you're going to see a body inside that kayak that's decomposing and looks like a zombie. That shit's traumatizing. Exactly. And especially for someone that's been alone on a kayak, I was like, this is like me. I'm seeing myself. Yeah. Um, and anyways, I get to San Francisco and I gave one of the people at that lifeboat station my email. And I get to San Francisco two days later and I got an email saying that the next day a woman came by and goes, have you seen an orange kayak? My husband had an accident yesterday and this person's like, yeah, we called in a helicopter yesterday because of that flip kayak. And she goes, yeah, my husband like freaked out from like an elephant seal. I don't know exactly why he freaked out, but he freaked out, jumped out of his kayak <laughs> and swam to shore. No. He swam to shore, scaled like a 60 foot cliff, like free solo to si like 60 foot cliff. <laughs> what? And then got like walked a mile to his car in Drake's Bay, got in and drove away without telling anybody. So the dude was fine. He was like at while we were calling in the helicopter, he was probably like at Pete's like getting a coffee or something. But he literally his wife came by and was like, "Do you know where he said he just flipped it somewhere in Point Reyes?" like and I'm just kind of coming to and we're like, "Oh my." So donkey yeah donkey. come on bro like you don't even need I, to like, i really wish i would have been there for that situation though where he's like ah elephant seal what do i do i'm gonna jump out yeah or <laughs> like it, or if you if you do roll your kayak you know make sure someone knows like it when you you know the first thing you think about when you see a flipped kayak and and the paddle that was also that was disturbing was the paddle was there yeah so i was like where is this guy but yeah and also just yeah he scaled the proper cliff <laughs> and heavy. then he just like walked back to his car. Yeah, man. I, uh, I've been in the ocean for most of my life as a surfer. And I've noticed that when you get out beyond the waves, when you go just a little bit further out, it's a whole nother category of danger that you need to respect. When you get out to the point where maybe if fog comes in, you're not going to be able to see the shore. If you get out far enough where there's some currents that are going to be sweeping you out to sea, it's a whole nother game. And being able to have plans B, C, D, and E in place can make the difference between life and death. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I know you surf Mavs and stuff. Um, and yeah, that, that when the ocean starts to change you can you know you can feel it change there's like an energy shift for sure um but it's a whole nother level of danger when there's no one around when there's no one around and yeah. mavericks I, I don't want to say it's safe but there are safety mechanisms mm -hmm. in place yeah. you know most people it's that more are about out the there, action yeah more people out there now know cpr they know what to do if mm -hmm. they see someone goes go down a lot of times there is safety in place but if you're in a kayak alone with no one around no one knows where you are any number of things can happen yeah, that that was one of the things I had to deal with the most was like that fear of like I could I, I if I drowned right now 
no one no one would know um i did have like one of those spots um which would send out like a, a beacon every hour or two that's cool um so do, you was, know, do you remember what uh what brand that was it was it was spot 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 it was just called spot okay um but i don't know i you know it was good they do market them as waterproof they're not waterproof um which i found out but um <laughs> What were you uh, using as uh, dry bags? Yeah, so dry bag wise, I was actually using. Um, going back to Higginbotham, Higginbotham's, they recommended uh, a brand, and really we're trying to like. They gave me a bunch of different brands of the stuff they were using, and I definitely did take like um, a lot of that advice. Then I also was doing it on a budget where I I didn't have endless money to like buy all new stuff for this trip, so I was using a lot of used gear. Uh, the kayak I bought was a used kayak, um, but I was using REI dry bags from REI like ni- 1995. Okay. And they worked? And they worked great. Great. <laughs> they were, uh, yeah, they worked. Nice. They weren't, there was, you know, my food bag would get water in it, but all my food was like packaged food. What kind of food were you uh, eating? I was eating... Um, in the morning, I would just eat Cliff Bars. I ate Cliff Bars every single day for the for my um, rock and roll. Yeah, they sponsor me. Shit and bricks. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. did they sponsor you? No, I, I wish oh, they, they did. Sh- That's what I'm saying. They, they should. Come on, sponsor. Cliff, step it up. <laughs> um, yeah, I ate uh, two Cliff Bars in the morning, and then I'd have one for a snack around 10, 10 a.m. And then I'd eat beef jerky and random shit for lunch, <laughs> uh, like Ritz crackers. And then for dinner, I would have like um, one of those you know, mountain house type meals, like mountain house and, um, backpackers pantry were my two. They're just like, um, you know, you heat up, you boil water and pour it into like a bag and it's like a two serving. They say two serving, but if you're hungry, it's like one serving. What kind of boiler were you using? I was using, um, jet boil. Jet. Uh, I wasn't using jet boil. My dad swears by the jet boil. I have one of those. Yeah. Those are awesome. They're great because they're so light. Mm-hmm. I've used those on backpacking trips. Yeah, they're so good. For I think that those are really good for like, you know, if you want to do the John Muir Trail and you want to consolidate mm-hmm. every ounce of weight. But uh, I know there are a few other types that work well. Yeah. Do you remember the, the type that you were using? I was just using like a pocket rocket. Okay. Yeah. just And that was just for a space like thing. I just like really wanted something that's really small. But the jet boil is self-contained. That's a really cool thing. So my, my brother actually did the PCT. Um he did the entirety of it, um, I think in 2016 or 2017. Big Brother? Yeah, Big Brother. Um, and it that is a, he did it, the, I think, the right way. I You know, there's a lot of people that, you know, I don't want to take away from anyone's experience, but he did it where it's continuous footpath. So you hike every step, you don't flip flop and go up or you don't skip a section and come back and do that. Or, um, And he did it on one of the gnarliest years ever. I think only 200 people out of 3,000 finished that year. Whoa. Continuous footpath. So. How long does that take? That's a five-month trip. Poof. So I I did welcome get to, to, welcome to Blisterville population. Oh you God. yeah he I I know he definitely he de- well he definitely inspired me with that trip. Yeah, what what kind of uh, uh, clothes were you wearing while you're kayaking? That's so it's funny. I thought I was gonna be wearing like a seven mil dive bottoms um, and then like a like a like a shirt a sun. SPF shirt. Those things are great. They're that's awesome. They're I awesome. swear I have a, a Patagonia sponsors me, but yeah. I have one of their um, long sleeve shirts with the hood. Oh yeah, and I take that thing on 
every trip I go on. That thing, as well as the um, sun uh, necks, sun, uh, what do you call them? Sun masks. Yeah, sun masks. Did, yeah. did you have a sun mask? I didn't. No. Fuck, those things are great. Yeah, I should have had. So, a cu- like, I did have Patagonia was the brand I was wearing for um, the sun shirts. They're yep. really good, and they do keep, I didn't get any sunburn, like, on my body. Did you have a, um, the hooded one? I didn't have a hooded one. I just wore a hat. Yeah, um, a big round hat. No, I wore a baseball hat. Which baseball is hat, dude. But back I, of the necks. Yeah. Well, the toasted. thing was the way the sun was. Actually, my back, the back of my neck, really never got sun until nice. like the last couple hours of the day, which was cool. But were you um, wearing shades as well? I was wearing shades, although I lost my shades along. I lost my shades twice on the trip, and I was going blind. I w- I'm not even kidding. Like I was. I remember, I kind of semi crash landed at Huntington Beach actually, and had to spend the night under a lifeguard tower there <laughs> and they were super chill about it and didn't kick me off because I didn't really have a lot of options. Um, and I remember like begging the one of the lifeguards, like, can you please just go check your lost and found for sunglasses? Like I, I can't leave all my gear here. There's like a bunch of bums like camped next to me. Like I, I can't leave all my gear. Could you just go check if there's sunglasses? Like I'm going blind. <laughs> At least I went, I- yeah, dude. I went on a trip to the Mentwise, uh-huh. and that's a spot where it's really bright. You're yeah. surfing eight hours a day, and one of the guys on our boat got sunburnt eyes, and he had to stay indoor in the dark for like two days of the trip because he couldn't Dang. see. Was that from like mostly glare? Do you think? I think mostly glare yeah. and b- just being out in the ocean on a bright sunny day, yeah. day after day. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a real thing that most people don't think about. Yeah, so I, I did have sunglasses, but I lost them a lot. And so I did most, like, half the trip without sunglasses. And then I was, like, like I said, I was begging lifeguards to go did look. Did you get some? I got some. Sick. And they were, how sick is this? They pull up and they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, the ones that were in the lost and found are, like, the floating kind. They're, like, those bombshell, <laughs> like, Oakley. I don't know if they're Oakley or whatever, but they have, like, the little pads Floaty on the sides, so they float. So I was, that was, like. Radical. There was a couple moments so like that helpful. during the trip yeah. where it felt like a like an act of God or something, you know, like we're just like. So were you wearing the seven mil dive bottoms or did you? No, I, I ended up, I ended up, it was so warm most of the days that I ended up wearing just like, uh, like, um, shorts, like the board shorts, board shorts every day. Nice. Board shorts and the sun shirt. And I would like lather up with 50 on my legs, but that just kept me cool so that I would, I wouldn't overheat. Because when you're sitting in the sun, it's a little different than like hiking. Yeah. Because you're just getting really blasted. So it was really important to like keep cool. Did the sunscreen work? Sunscreen worked. What kind were you using? Um, I kind of went through, I started with some good stuff. And then as I was going along, I had to kind of like use what I could find. Um, but I was but, using zinc for my face. Yeah. Like full full zinc. Yeah, the white stuff. The white stuff. Like, like I looked very funny. <clears throat> yeah. And I didn't shower, so. But you got to get serious about that stuff, especially on your face. The translucent stuff doesn't work nearly as well as some, as like a white paste that'll go on it. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's the big big danger. Bigger danger than sharks. <laughs> Sun exposure. I, absolutely. So is there any other um, gear? I want to I get down into the trip and yeah. I want to uh, learn a bit more about, you know, the last Kelp Forest project and mm-hmm. diving. But is there any other gear that you took on the trip that you'd highly recommend um again like i said a lot of the stuff i was using it wasn't bad gear but it was used right um so i guess like thinking about like what piece of gear saved me the most um 
GPS, a Garmin GPS is like was, and it was funny. I talked to the Higginbotham's and because they were paddling with, with their arms, um, and couldn't really sit up and like look at a GPS. It wasn't as much of like they had one, but they said they didn't use it that much. But because I was sitting and like could, you know, easily look at it, that ended up being really cool just for gauging distance and being like, all right, I have two hours left of daylight. Can I make it here or do I need to land here? And right. uh, save me on a couple occasions. And otherwise, I think just having like a really good, a really good dry bag that keeps every, like keeps at least your, you know, like puffy jacket and your long underwear dry and your sleeping bag. If you can keep that stuff dry, your the rest of your gear, you can kind of grit through it. So did you use a blow up sleeping mat? Yeah, I just used a blow up sleeping mat. Nice. Um, and then sleeping and then bag and you'd set that up on the beach every mm-hmm. night. Yeah. And did, did you dig down at all when you'd uh, sleep or would you just find a flat spot on the beach to sleep? Sometimes I was in a, like, I would say like mm, two thirds of the night, I actually set up a tent mm-hmm. um, just because it kind of just, there's like a lot of bugs on the beach that actually like end up really messing with your sleep. Like yeah. those kind of gross. Have you ever seen those? Like Little the, gnats? Not even the gnats. Like there's like pill bugs and like stuff that'll come out of the sand when there's light sources. Mm. I don't know. I had one where I had this nice fire at Drake's Estero and I didn't have that many fires, but I did have a nice fire and I set up a lantern next to my bed, like sleeping mat. And I was just going to sleep out like above the tide line and just like have like a night under the stars. I was all stoked. And then I came back and there was these like inch and a half, like translucent white, like not sand, like in between a sand crab and a cockroach, like literally coating my entire sleeping pad <sighs> and my sleeping bag, which I had taken out. And I was just like super, I was off that. <laughs> what kind of tent were you using? I was just using uh, some, like a my one of my dad's old, like one to two man tents. It fits two people if in like an emergency and yeah. it fits one people, one person nicely. Nice. I have a half dome. Works pretty well. There's, nice. It's like Is a, it one person? It's two person. I want to mm-hmm. get a one person just yeah. for a backpacking trip or yeah. a solo hunt or something like that. But I've had the half dome for a few years now. Mm-hmm. It's super quick to set up and works really well. Yeah. Um, so you, uh, okay. If we, if you think of any other gear, I love okay. this shit. I'm a total gear yeah, geek yeah, yeah. And, and that stuff makes or breaks a trip. So yeah. let me know on that. But you, so you started up in Oregon, mm-hmm. you started to uh, taking these, uh, started taking the trip down South. Yeah. Um, did you know that you were going to do the trip and, and try and raise awareness for kelp forests from the beginning? Or was that a mission that became clear partway through? Yeah. So that was interesting because I, you know, as a diver, um, you're aware of kind of like the, the things right off the coast, right? You're And, and especially diving all of California, you kind of see the range in, you know, bottom strata as far as like, you know, structure and that kind of stuff, but also obviously the kelp and the, the health of the kelp. Right. And, For people who aren't spear fishermen, fish hang around kelp forests because yeah. it's their home, it's their structure. So a lot of time as a diver, you are diving in kelp forests. Yeah. And so also I grew up abalone diving and the closure there, um, I, you know, I witnessed like firsthand every, every summer I'd go up there and I witnessed firsthand like the kelp slowly going away. And the thing with Northern California though is, you know, a lot of it, you, you can't see from the road. So I didn't know quite how bad I knew it was bad. I was like in my head, I'm like, wow, I've seen, you know, where I dive in elk, where I dive in a couple other places. I've seen the kelp vanish 
before my eyes um, over five years. But I didn't, I was like, okay, maybe there's pockets though. And as I started to do, Oregon to San Francisco was 21 days. And I could count the patches over, that were bigger than a football field on one hand. And yeah, that's about, that's, so there's like, I mean, there is no kelp in Northern California anymore. If, if, if anybody's wondering, I saw every, in, <laughs> yeah. I saw every inch of it. Reporting there's, back. Reporting back. You're, you're and, our kelp correspondent. Yeah. There's, um, there's no kelp up there. There's, there's almost zero. Okay. And it's really disturbing. So let's talk about the dynamic between urchins, abalone and sea otters. Yeah. Um, how does it work? Why is there, why is kelp disappearing? Um, the issue up there. So first I want to start off by saying kelp is super prolific. So, you know, these things do follow kind of, you know, 10 year trends. So it's not always like if, if you see kelp die off in a certain area, it's not always like the end of the world. Mm. I know in 1982, 1983, uh, El Nino event in Southern California, kelp was decimated, came back about four years later. Um, it grows super fast, grows super fast. And, and 96, 97 El Nino as well. And that's due to the warm water mostly. And then also to the, uh, larger waves. Um, in Northern California though, we have uh, like a perfect storm and it's, and it's something that's not going to come back in four years. Um, it already hasn't, it's been seven, it's been eight. Um, and there's still no kelp. So what happened up there is basically in 2013, 2014, we had a severe, um, and it's still going on today, but it started around then. Uh, it's called sea star wasting disease. And it basically affected all of, it affected every species actually of sea star on the North Coast and all the way up into the Pacific Northwest. I know they had issues with it in Seattle, Puget Sound, all the way down. So really big problem because the sea stars are like one of the main apex predators um, for urchins. They eat urchins. And normally you would have sea otters along the California coast that would be if there was a sea star die-off, you know, the um, otters also eat urchins so in like monterey we have severe kelp die-off in monterey bay but it's not as bad because there's still there's still a lot of sea otters and so you know i think i don't want to throw out numbers but there was a significant loss of kelp in the last around the same time you know um carmel especially has lost a lot of kelp due to urchins but there is still pockets that are really healthy because of otters right and to show a visual for people so you're underwater you're looking at this big kelp forest Mm -hmm. and urchins are hanging on eating the kelp now if you had a healthy population of uh sea stars and sea otters Mm -hmm. they would be eating the urchins off of the kelp there'd be more room for the abalone to also feast on the kelp but that was one of the reasons why they closed ab diving is because the abs weren't able to basically there it was uh like an issue of um, not enough room, you know, for the abalone yeah. to be able to get on the kelp, mm-hmm. um, and there's no otters to be able to take down this the uh, urchins. Urchins, right? Exactly, and mixed with warming of the water. Yeah, and so and the other thing is, kelp is really reliant on upwelling. It's like they don't kelp is really prolific and it grows really fast, but it doesn't hold nutrients very well. And so if there is warm water, um, uh you know, like what you would see in an El Nino or something like that, you're not getting 
uh, that warm water is not as nutrient rich as these cold upwellings driven by the wind that we see along the California coast and mm. the California current. And so that's one of the issues in Southern California is that we might start to see more as this century progresses, but it's that without, you know, consistent upwelling and with warmer water, it's going to just stress the kelp more so that if there is something like, you know, an urchin, you know, boom or something like that, it's going to make the kelp a lot less able to bounce back in the right. same way. So cold upwellings specifically, or is it just that the cold wind creates more upwelling? It's so generally just like cold water, like that cold water, like that, you know, bitter cold water you feel on the North coast. If you're up there a lot, that's, um, the kind of byproduct of upwelling. So they go hand in hand. Got it. So, and, it's not and like, to clarify, does upwelling just stir up the nutrients so the kelp can absorb it more? It brings, yeah, it brings nutrients from deep water, um, up into like the water column close to shore. So, got yeah. it. Okay. Um, that's great. And yeah. so did you know that you wanted to raise awareness around this issue before the trip? Before the trip, I, I didn't, I, I, I knew that I wanted to, like, I knew it was an issue that mattered to me because I, I dive. So it was like a personal selfish, like I want the kelp to be there, but then actually seeing it and being like, Oh my God, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing here. Hmm. It's, it's, I mean, it's barren. Um, to see that. And in my head, I'm just like, this is, this is a, I mean, this is a catastrophe. This is like a serious issue. And so once I, what was interesting though, is that central California, south of Monterey is doing fairly well right now. So there was hope. Um, and I also got to dive a couple of times on my trip, which was cool. Yeah, we're going to get into that. Yeah. And, but yeah, that North Coast section really garnered me to be like, when I get done with this, I want to do something. And where can people check out the website? The yeah, last. Yeah. So the, our, our website right now is um, thelastforestsproject.com. Okay. Is there, are there any solutions that are being put forward that you know about? Yeah. We're, right now we're actually, um, kind of helping out and starting like a little bit of um we're yeah we're helping out a association association called the greater fairlands association um doing some work with them just to you know bring stuff to the limelight um but they're doing some amazing work actually um on the direct action that we can take to make change so right now they're they are doing kind of there's kind of a consortium of different people um there's a lot of you know, stakeholders in this, you know, whether it's like the commercial red urchin, um, divers industry, industry yep. the recreational abalone industry, people, kayakers, whatever, there's like a lot of people invested. And so there is a lot of work being done in Northern California. Greater Fairlands Association is kind of heading a, um, kelp recovery, bull kelp recovery program. So a lot of the things that are being done up there right now is raising money to harvest urchin. So t basically to pay, urchin divers from some fund or, you know, whatever to, um, collect urchins, not to cull them necessarily. Like so there's like something called in situ, like culling, which is where you just kill them on the reef that there's some issues around that. So, but to collect them and to establish areas where there's a few enough urchins that the kelp can re like take hold again. Right. Man, I was just hunting yesterday with a commercial urchin diver. I wish I would have asked him some questions yeah. about this. Was he uh, from the North Coast? 
Uh, his name's Connor. He's from uh, from like Oxnard area. Oh, cool. Yeah, but super cool dude. Um, but I wish I would have asked him about this yeah. exact conversation. Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> so there could be some kind of payment incentives. Would this be for commercial urch- urchin divers or for recreational divers? Both. So Both. they want to. Oh, they kind of what they want to do is they want to maybe open up a little bit more. Rec- like right now, I think you can take five gallons of urchins per day and they're thinking you know maybe if we incentivize people and to take more not like in a crazy amount but to take more that might be a good recreational approach that's going to have a small impact maybe negligible but if we do pay um commercial divers it's worked in palos verdes it could work in the nor- north coast the scale is a lot bigger up on the north coast so it's very daunting hmm. but it has worked in palos verdes how do commercial urchin divers harvest urchin um, I think there's a couple ways. A lot, like I know some of them use a vacuum now, hmm. which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, but if you're trying to do it at scale, yeah. Hey, I don't know. Have you ever read the book Blue Water Gold Rush? No. That's a really cool book. It's about actually the urchin industry and how it became a thing in California, and it started in the Channel Islands, and then the whole ur- industry actually like. Once the Channel Islands started to become a little bit picked over, everyone moved up to uh, Point Arena and like the north, the north coast up huh. there. Maybe I have heard of that book. There's it's, some crazy like Wild West cowboy stories. Of oh older yeah, urchin divers. Oh, there's a guy that used to dive um, the Farallon Islands. What a psycho! Is, uh, messed up, <laughs> messed up. I don't eat a lot, I don't, of, lot of men in the gray suit out at uh, Farallon yeah, Islands. There's. There's a really cool, if you ever have time on YouTube, there's a really cool link. I think it's called Diving the Devil's Teeth. Or- the, yeah, well, The Devil's Teeth is a book I have right here. I'm yeah. supposed to read it. Exactly. That's It's a good book, and there's a little short about this dude who dives out there solo, or he used to, and he was a commercial urchin guy out of, out of SF. It's yeah. just really... There's some psycho there's divers. Some, <laughs> some psycho divers. D- diving's... Just fucking hardcore, man. Yeah, it's really There's some metal. Salty psychos in yeah. that world. I want to get them on the podcast. Yeah, com- commercial guys have seen more than probably anyone else, too. Okay, you know, like just they they know what's happened up there, and I definitely know that they're really disturbed by what's happened up okay. there. I mean, like the red urchin. So purple urchins are the issue. But at the same, because red urchins, so red urchins are what is commercially viable. They're about tr- three times the size of purple urchins usually. Um, so that industry, because the purple urchins have ate everything, the red urchins are starving. So like the gonad, like the uni or whatever that we eat from red urchins is, you know, diminished to like a tenth of what it was. And so that entire fishery up there is is decimated i mean it, it was like a three million dollar industry um is in the channel islands this is no this is up in north coast okay so for, out of mendocino county it was like mendocino and sonoma was like three million dollars i think for the industry not insane but like a large industry and i mean i think it's i don't even i don't like i know there's maybe a couple guys that still dive for red urchin up there but it's like almost decimated like that in that commercial industry is like pretty much done okay for, for now um which is so crazy. we don't sell purple urchins. I, so they're looking into it because they're smaller. They're smaller, and then also if there's a lot of them, then they're not super healthy. So then you just, I mean, the row is going to be too small to like be commercially viable. What's the row? That's the yellow part. I guess it's the gonad. Um, 
or yeah, it's like the yellow part that we eat in sushi. Have you ever cooked uh, urchin or eaten it in any capacity? I don't know that I have actually. I, yeah, I've eaten it once or twice, yeah. like raw. Just raw with like some soy sauce. Yeah, and... just like straight out of the ocean. It's not. It's not that good. Huh. I, I. It's not for me. Yeah. It's not for me. <laughs> yeah. but don't don't be pushing that. We should be like, no, urchin's the shit, yeah. man. No, true. Um, the I I always. Uh, I love the story of sushi coming to the United States. Do you mm-hmm. know about this? No, I haven't heard about so that. So the, the story of of uh, sushi coming to the United States is that it was really difficult to market in the beginning mm. because people looked at this raw fish and they thought, what? Why would I want uncooked fish? This is disgusting. Yeah. And it took years and years to get this culture of raw fish being seen as a premium product in the United mm-hmm. States. Anyway, um, I want to try some merchant. I'm going to do that soon. Yeah, Definitely. Because I'm all about conservation. Go for the big ones. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so there's there's that. What was the organization called once again? Um, Fairlawn. Greater Fairlawns Association. Okay. They're working with um, a bunch of people up on the North Coast. I, you know, it, I couldn't name all of them. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And the, the other thing that is cool that they're doing up there is, you know, looking into not only CSAR wasting syndrome and how maybe marine biologists could figure out a way to either solve that or you know, research it more, but also, you know, the idea of kelp seeding, you know, and right. like that is a viable option. I know. So Tasmania, I don't know if you're aware, but Tasmania has lost 95% of their kelp forest as well in a similar issue. Like warm water came in, did most of the de- destruction and then urchins came in and finished off pretty much everything. And so there actually Tasmania is one of the other places that's leading the world in what are, where do we go from here? Where, how do we, you know, kelp seed? How do we make, you know, how do we get the public interested so that we, there's money flowing in to make it a commercially viable product, you know, grow kelp forests, you know, basically. It's tasty. Yeah. And in a lot of other countries, they they grow it as a commercially viable product. Like I was down in uh, Chile and in uh every market down uh, along the Chilean coast, they have huge kelp that they just sell in bundles and people will cook with it. That's crazy. That's super cool. It tastes great. Yeah. I had a guy on my show also named Ian O'Holloran who Mm -hmm. is a kelp I guess you'd call him a kelp chef. Yeah. He makes kelp ice cream, you know, dried kelp that you can eat, the the kind that you get at the store, but all kinds of products from kelp um, that are really good. So there's there's no reason why it couldn't get pushed more into the mainstream here. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's just just about, you know, awareness. And that's one of the things that we're trying to work on with our project is people don't know what we're losing. Yeah. So we want to show the beauty of it. We want to involve like, you know, get people to have a stake in the issue, you know, whether it's a little kid, inspire a little kid to become a marine biologist or to inspire a billionaire to, you know, fund the entire kelp seeding program, kelp seeding program on the North Coast. Have you seen Leonardo DiCaprio's new film, Ice on Fire? I I actually haven't. I'm kind of scared to watch it. It's good. No, it's good. It's, and I I say it's good also because it's not just a doom and gloom documentary. Mm -hmm. It is a spotlight on various large scale regenerative projects that are happening right now. So he um, he details a uh, one of the largest reforestation projects um, that's happening right now in the United States. I believe it's up on the Washington coast. Uh-huh. He talks with um, a commercial urchin diver, and there's a spot, I'm, ugh, I forget exactly where it is, but there is a big kelp reforestation project. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the stats that stuck with me is that if we commercially harvested 
kelp and oyster. Um, kelp and oysters both sequester carbon mm-hmm. significantly more than land forests, and yeah. you could create fifty million jobs if we um, you create fifty million jobs if we harvested kelp in five percent kelp and oysters in five percent of U.S. territorial water. Wow. So there are these large scale projects yeah. that are happening that would be fucking rad if off the coast we just start reseeding kelp and oysters to sequester yeah. carbon and then feed people. Yeah. It's I have you been up to Scotts Creek recently, north of Santa Cruz? Uh yeah. There's the kelp forest there is doing insane. Yeah. I I uh started surfing whatever 13, 12, 13 years ago. I've I've never seen the kelp forest the, the way it looks up there. So yeah. there is hope and it's not like all doom and gloom. It just is going to require at this point in, in my perspective, a little bit of human intervention. Right. Um, yeah. Just at least on the North coast. Absolutely. So, so uh, that was great. The last, the last kelp forest, last forest project, the last forest project.com. Yeah. That's where people can check it out. Yeah. Okay. Let's and get f- back into the adventure. Yeah, absolutely. That we did good there. That was, uh, I feel like <laughs> we, we rounded out the environmental section yeah, of this. For sure. Let's get more into, uh, more into some adventures. I'm sure you got a few stories for me. Yeah. So you, we, we took it from Oregon down through Northern California. Mm-hmm. Um, were there any super mem- memorable moments that you had out there? You, you, did you have your spearfishing gear with you? Not in Northern California. Okay. I didn't want to dive by myself up in Northern California. Yeah, fuck that. <laughs> I saved that for cent- Central Cal. Okay. But. So then did you have someone meet you with spearfishing gear on Central California? So when I landed in San Francisco, actually, I re-stocked, like, obviously, on food and took on di- a different like le- set of gear. Mm. Um I just got, I took on my spearfishing equipment and fishing pole. Did you have a friend meet you down at the beach and get you your stuff? So I live in, I I grew up in San Francisco. And so I landed actually in like a Chrissy field. So I didn't have to deal with any waves at Ocean Beach or anything. I just came in through the, yeah, I was actually, Ocean Beach sounds like a fucking yard sale. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I grew up doing the paddle out there and I was like, no, no, I'm good. I know, I know what I'm getting into. <laughs> yeah, um, it's enough to break the spirit. Yeah. So I came in at Chrissy Field and then spent two, actually two days off. That was, that was hmm. um, interesting though. Uh, it was really cool. My, my girlfriend met me there and my whole family was there. So that was like a really nice little reunion and like recharge and got back on the water. One of my kind of tenants before the trip how I wanted to do it was like never take more than like three or four days off or else I wouldn't consider it like a continuous trip. Right. Um, but I did take two days off there. And I then was, you got your spearfishing gear. Got my spearfishing gear, reloaded, and then set back out again. Where'd you get your best diving on the trip? Um, down in Big Sur. Down in Big Sur. I, I didn't actually dive as much as I wanted to. The conditions did not line up. I was hoping, I was coming through in September. A lot of times there's, a lot of times there's really good visibility. And I'm really comfortable, or not really comfortable, but I'm a lot more comfortable diving on my own if it's really good viz, Yeah, obviously. And so when I went down there, it was really bad viz, actually, for almost all of Big Sur. So I, I did, I had a day coming um, coming in to Rocky Point area. There was, there's like a little, I kind of got out of the wind there and... Um, got some diving in. Got a little rockfish for dinner, a little olive rockfish. Nice. Um, and then I also got a dive in kind of more central big, sir. Um, my, I, we know this beach that you can like hike this super sketchy trail down to. And my brother and one of my good buddies, Sean met me actually at that beach. We just had it planned out. And if 
I didn't make it there, it was going to be an issue because they were going and I didn't have a phone. And yeah, I met them there and they brought their dive gear and we ended up diving off the little reef there. And the first day was gnarly, like four foot viz and horrible. And we woke up in the morning, we're pretty bummed on it. And we just kicked out and just got in some deeper water and took a couple like 40, 50 foot drops. And yeah, we got a couple of vermilion each, which was like, did you have a spot to be able to cook that with your little setup as well? Yeah. Pan? So yeah, we, I had, a, I, Sean brought a pan and some ghee, which is like, I don't know. I think it's like Indian butter. butter. Yeah. Yeah. And cooked it up right there. And that was like probably the best meal I had the whole trip, which was cool. Mental. Yeah. That wow, was, man. And then getting through, um, central to Southern California, were there any memorable spots that you stopped in that area? Yes. There's obviously uh, the Huntington Beach uh, sunglass saga, yeah. the, the great sunglass so- saga of 2019. Yeah. Um, so what was what was cool about the trip um, was I planned it. I did not want to be in the fog the whole time. I was like a big, I was like, I'm going to be bummed if I'm waking up like soggy every morning on top of being wet already every day, the whole day. So I planned it in August, September, October, which some a sane person would be like, that's probably not your best bet for a couple of reasons. It's like prime shark season, you know, on the California coast. And then also there is swell. August, September, October is like September. September is, huh? Yeah. Like the fall is like when they all come back from. Yeah. Sharktober. I, I've heard more. I, maybe I'm, that, I'm not maybe that's expert. just. A, uh, yeah. 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 No, I, I mean, they're, they're just com- the whole great white population is coming back more and more each year. So yeah. who knows? I've heard it's October more through January, but yeah, who knows? Yeah. No. Yeah. It definitely. I just have heard yeah. stories and things like anyway, that. Anyway. So, so August, September, October. Yeah. And how was the weather? The weather was insane. I, I, I scored, I got so lucky, but to backtrack a little bit, the first seven days was almost flat. I, it's ridiculous. I was in Humboldt, Del Norte and, and Del Norte. And that whole area up there is just well known for being like the most exposed, everything coming through the lost coast, coming through the lost coast. It was, um, yeah, I mean, it was good flat. Yeah. And then coming out of the lost coast, I got destroyed. <laughs> it was like 20, 20 knot South winds for three days straight and eight, eight foot swell, eight seconds from the Northwest. Oh, and then that stretch coming out of the, um, were you getting seasick? I don't get seasick really bad, which was a good, I, which was nice. But I've heard that when you get those numbers where the amplitude and the period are the same, it's a recipe for seasickness. Oh, I mean, yeah. If, if I was on a little bit bigger boat, I think I would have been, but also I was so focused. I was really scary too. Um, that whole stretch from the lost coast down through Mendocino, there's not really any good places to land. Hmm. So I actually had this really interesting experience where I'm fighting South. There's wave reflection off the cliff coming back. So I have backwash and then I have this eight at eight, eight foot at eight second swell, like coming from behind me. And then I had wind chop, like two to three foot South wind chop coming at me from the South. It was like, it was actually hell. I think I went that day. I went 15 mile. It took me like eight and a half hours to do like 15 miles or something, which is ridiculous. No planes. Yeah. Were you going, uh, every single day, every single day you go, you camp at night, you wake up the next morning and you kayak for most of the day yeah that so i was going most day um 
almost every day. I think I went nine days. And then this day when it was just super gnarly, I actually was going to land somewhere else. I was going to land in Westport and the swell was way bigger than I thought. I should not have been out on the ocean. I should like, like, I'm just going to say it. I should not have been out there. It was really intense. I was like catching waves like the way the swell was, like the period and the way everything, I was like actually like going down the face, like purling and then like sketchy, uh, super sketchy. And I get to this point and it's probably an hour till sunset and I got to go six more miles. And I don't even know if there's a good place to land at Westport. Like I've, I've, I've seen it a couple of times. I've been to Westport like twice before that. And I'm just like thinking about the beach in my head. Like, could I really land in that, in this type of swell? And I finally got to the answer, like, I'm, I, I'm not going to do it. So then I, like, did this emergency. I um, turned and, like, charged through some surf and landed in Rockport, which is north of Westport. Um, that's So it's we're talking, like, if you've ever been to Mendocino, Fort Bragg area, it's, like, 20 miles north of that. Um, and it's this beach owned by this timber company that used to have, like, ship timber out of this cove. I don't like I literally camped in these old pier pilings. It was kind of sick. Um, but that I mean, it, it's this tiny little pocket cove. That whole area up there actually is pretty crazy. It's, it used to be called the dog hole coast dog. Um, and the dog hole port is like a it's like a not port port where huh. they basically, you know, build a little pier. And then during the summer months, they just like have ships coming every single day and they're shipping timber. They were shipping timber from the North coast to the Bay area on these like little schooners and like Whoa. tiny, tiny boats. Look it up. It's the craziest. So you camped on that beach. So I camped on that beach and were you able to make it in. Okay. Yeah. Barely. I, so I timed the set and almost got clipped by like a proper six foot wave, but I just kind of outran it and then it just kind of pushed me in kind of came up over it and then kind of yeah just glided in on a couple little white waters and it was fine but then I'm on this beach and there's this swell so I ended up taking a day off there and the next day like after that charging out through and then it was even honestly it was even bigger um and I was I should have just waited another couple days but I was just getting anxious like on this beach by myself with no one to talk to it could like I was ready to just get going. Like, Wilson, yeah, sure. Wilson, <laughs> there is these, no Wilson. <laughs> these people, Wilson. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I yeah. I'm talking to a volleyball. These people came by after, and this was the Lost Coast. I didn't see anyone, so I I had gone four days without seeing or talking to anyone. And um, these people came by, and I'm like, hey, hey, like started talking to them. They're like, you're on a private beach, man. And I was like, oh, really? They're like, yeah, this is owned by the timber company. We won't tell them, but like, I would definitely be cutty about camping here. And I was like, oh, good to know. Yeah. Um, when was the first yard sale? First yard sale, yeah. So moving back, so came down to San Francisco, then went um, um, through c- Central California. And have you ever been to Point Sal? No. So south of San Luis Obispo, there's like. Uh, 10 to 15 miles of dunes, these crazy cool dunes, like the biggest coastal dunes in all of California. And they, it's like, so just south of Pismo. And then they kind of end, they kind of go out along this peninsula and end at what's called Point Sal. And it's this crazy, like no man land out there. So to the south, you have Vandenberg Air, Air Force Base. And to the north, you have 15 miles of dunes and oil derricks. It's like an oil field, Guadalupe oil fields. 
And Point Sal is this like weird zone. It's it, it was honestly the most surprise. It was the biggest surprise of the trip. I I'm kind of going along these dunes, going along these dunes, kind of come out on these rocks, and then the the um, entire coast just falls away to my left, and it's this like mile and a half long point all the way in um, into towards Vandenberg Air Force Base, and right in the corner there, you're allowed. It's not the Air Force Base, so I wasn't going to get hassled. Um, but the scale of everything there was crazy. If you ever have a chance, it's a really, there's a really cool hike there that goes out into like Point South State Park, and no one really goes there. Hmm. Like it's not on any guidebooks that they I've will seen. will now. <laughs> yeah, not on any guidebooks. Um, um, but it's just a good hike. It's a good yeah. little state park. Uh, California, man. California is so gorgeous. There's so much wilderness. There's so much public land. There's so many beaches mm-hmm. that people don't go to because they're a little bit more difficult to access. But if you have just a little bit of motivation, you can mm-hmm. get out on your own very quickly. Yes. You don't need to travel. You don't need to get a plane ticket and travel halfway around the world to go on a legit adventure. Yes. And I think for the most part, actually, we've we had our influence is there on the coast, but at night, no one was ever coming to like, I was, I mean, I was alone. Like people leave the coast at night and a lot of the houses that are along the coast, all these like rich, wealthy houses, people don't live in those. Yeah. And, um, I kind of found that actually the coast was relatively left alone to a certain extent, which was kind of cool on my trip. Never. Um, but anyway, so I, I, I camp at Point Sal and the next day I have to go through 35 miles of Vandenberg air force base. If I don't want to land at in the air force base which is illegal yeah and that's like where spacex is and a lot of other like high profile stuff there so i didn't know but i was guessing that they weren't going to be friendly they weren't being super stoked i'm like dude we're launching rockets here yeah you're like hey i got an olive rockfish for you guys (laughs) legit (laughs) come on elon hook it up dude elon i was it was i saw the spacex um launching like the they they, it's right on the coast i'm like really you guys got a... Um, where is this? Uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base. And that's where they're launching SpaceX? Um, yeah. Or where that's where they have the rockets? They have SpaceX. at least one of their um, towers there. Wow, that's cool. Um, so I'm going through, and I'm just either... I try to go make it 35 miles to Halama, which is like that campground there, um, or I land somewhere in Vandenberg Air Force Base. And so I try to land at this place called Surf Beach. Um, it's... There, no one goes there. It's there is a public access point there. Um, guys, do you surf there? There's been three fatal shark attacks since the 90s. Little known fact, it's like I think it's probably per capita, probably the sharkiest place in based on how many guys surf there versus how many guys have been killed there. It's pretty gnar. And tried to land there, and it was solid like groundswell. And I just didn't time it. I tried to use, I was sitting out the back for like 20 minutes trying to time it, use like every ounce of surf knowledge I have, like tried to find a rip, found a rip, was pushing in and just took like, went over the falls on like a five or six foot wave, like fully launched me out of my seat, like (laughs) up and over the handlebars. And you lose all your shit? Lost all my shit. And yeah, lost all my shit. And then kind of washed in with the kayak both of the catamaran arms broke my rudder broke (laughs) i lost i lost all my all my dive gear no gone gone Gone. never seen again um my weight belt fins um 
I actually had given Sean my spear gun. Is so, your brother? Uh, my friend Sean. Yeah. Or maybe I gave it to my brother. I can't remember. So I didn't have my spear gun, but I lost everything. I um, gone with the wind. I, it felt it felt like that. And I come I come into shore and I realize I'd even missed the public access point by a mile. So I'm in the sand. Like I'm land. I'm on the sand. It, there's like signs telling me like illegal like like trespassers will be prosecuted and I'm like here with this like broken kayak <laughs> and gear I'm not kidding gear is washing up like hundreds yards both like down up and down the beach like water bottles and and that was where I kind of lost it I like got all my gear up kind of hidden behind a dune and I'm looking back out at the surf and it looks like a you know solid six foot day at ocean beach where there's like four lines of white water and I'm like the trip the trip is over like I, I either go I have someone drive me back up to like maybe I don't know Pismo and start again from there and do this section or like the trip's pretty much over and yeah that was really really gnarly how'd you get off the beach yeah so the story goes on um so I had a bar somehow I like took took my phone out of like the dry bag everything inside the kayak and it was still like not wet and it was on and I had a bar of service which was I was shocked so I was actually able to call my girlfriend and she has a truck and she was able to pick me up um, and some of my gear, I left the kayak there, but I like took pictures of all the gear I needed to like repair and then went to San Luis Obispo to the Home Depot, got some stuff and like got a bunch of stuff to jury rig the kayak and then went back. I was like, I'm just going to give it a try a day later. And I looked at the swell forecast. There was no small days. Like this was the smallest day in the next, you know, 18 day forecast, long term forecast. So I was like, this is, this is my chance. I got to go. And here's where it gets kind of gnarly. I'm so I going out through the surf and, um, it took me like 15 minutes. I was like punching through just like white water after white water, getting pushed, like almost back to the beach, getting out, kind of getting pushed. Like dive gear is gone. Dive gear is gone. And so the w- interesting thing is my kayak actually had foot pedals. I don't know if you've seen those Hobie kayaks that have the foot pedals. Yeah. So during the whole trip, I was kind of like alternating. I would, um, sometimes I'd be paddling like with. Do the, the foot pedals have some kind of. They have like turbine fins or, on the bottom. Right. That move back and forth. And they help propel you forward. And they propel you and they go pretty fast. So huh. I was kind of, it was, it was interesting. Like some days when it was really flat and that kind of stuff, they were better than um, actually paddling. Right, right, right. Um, it so, sounds like one of those machines that you see at the gym where it's like the Stairmaster y- machine. Yes. Yeah. It kind of had that vibe and it kind of sits, goes down through the kayak. And so I'm actually, I was actually going out through the surf with, with the foot pedals because I was like, I want to have like full, I still had the, you know, paddle in my hand, but I was like, I wanted full like eyesight and be able to have, use the rudder to its like best ability. Right. Um, and going, going, and I finally see my little gap and I make for it and a set comes out of like, comes out of deep water. And I like duck dove, like a, <laughs> like six to eight foot face, like with a, you know, 200 pound kayak and 200 pounds of gear. Dude, you are Tom Hanks from Castaway. (laughs) No, it was literally Tom Hanks or Castaway. Here's the crazy thing though. So my paddle. You lost Wilson. No, I lost my paddle. No. What? So my paddle gets ripped out of my hands and I can't turn around because there's another wave. 
it gets it gets just pushed in so i only have these foot pedals and so i actually did make it up over the next one so i like duck dive this first one make it over the next one barely and then i'm out the back and i i don't have a fucking paddle (laughs) but i don't want to go back in yeah and i'm looking i can see point conception ahead of me and i can see like my destiny like right there i'm like because like once you get past point conception it's kind of like as far as kayaking sea kayaking goes is you're pretty much good yeah point conception's one of the gnarliest last spots on it's the coast exactly and once you're around For that, sailors at least yeah exactly yeah and, and the higginbotham brothers told me that they said steve once you get around point conception you're good it'll be like the best 10 days to 20 days of paddling you've ever had um just get around point conception and i remember that and i'm here without a paddle um, looking down south towards Point Conception. And I start going. I'm just using the foot pedal and then this um, rudder. And I'm making kind of, I'm making some ground, making some ground. And then my rudder, the pin holding my rudder in place breaks. And I haven't even got to Halama yet. So I'm still on Vandenberg Air Force property. But I had just gotten around this one point called like I think it was Point Arguello. And actually interesting story, like six um US Navy destroyers crashed there back in the 50s. And it was like the biggest loss of maritime property and life um not in a war in US history was right there, right where all my shit was going down. Say that once more. So back in the 50s I want to say, um I want to say like 52, there was um, a fleet going down the coast and they thought that Point Arguello was Point Conception. So they did this big turn in the dark. This was in the dark. The lead one made this turn too early thinking it was Point Conception, but it was Point Arguello. Hit this rock. It's now called Destroyer Rock. And all of them followed the first one and couldn't tell that he crashed. So six destroyers crashed on this one point. And I think like largest loss of human life, largest loss of uh, Navy property. And I think human life, I think a bunch of guys died um, Wow! in, in US history. outside of a war, outside, outside of, of a war. wartime setting. Wow. Right there, right where my rudder broke. Shit. So I'm uh, without a rudder and I'm literally sticking things over the side of the boat to like act as a rudder. Still using these foot pedals. I get in, I have this weird night where I'm like on private property like camping next to this little stream like there was a shipwreck on the beach i was like weird vibes and the next morning i'm just like you know what i don't have a paddle i'm i put a tent stake in for my rudder a tent stake i use a tent stake to to hold my rudder in place so i did that i'm like this is the most jury rigged thing but i'm getting around point conception i'm like i'm getting around point conception like i cannot end my trip 4 miles you know no it was like 7 miles short of like this you know goal that i've been trying to do the whole time and i take off that morning super early like at sunrise or before sunrise to try to like no wind no nothing because without um with a 10 stick rudder and foot pedals pedals, you're not really like super cut out for not gunning it in the south wind so to speak yeah and here's where like i just i i'm Still to this day, I'm tripping. So I come around Point Conception. I got fairly lucky. It was just like maybe like five, ten knots of wind, which is for Point Conception is chill. And I come around Coho Bay. is this beautiful like 
His face is south. It's like, it's not white sand, but it, as far as I was concerned, it was like a white sand, perfect beach. And I come into shore and I land and there's like a little trash pile where like the last um, high tide had been. And there was a, there was a fucking paddle in this trash pile. No. I'm not kidding. Wow. And, and I literally, I, I was, I was tripping. It was just like this moment where all these things getting off that beach, being in despair, being like seven miles from point conception with no paddle, like 10 stake rudder. And I come around this corner and there was a, there was a damn paddle lying on the beach when I came in. Wow. And it was just like a trip. Was there a conversation inside your mind that came up consistently throughout this trip? You got a lot of time on your own sitting with your thoughts. Was there anything that you didn't expect to come up psychologically for yourself or a, you know, a, anything, a person you're thinking about, a, a theme in your life, uh, anything that, that came up consistently through all this time alone? Um, I think, I guess one of the hardest things when you're alone like that and that came up a lot is like being self-critical, like a little thing, like dropping your sunglasses in the ocean. You're like screaming at yourself. Um, so I think it was, there was a lot of self-criticism. I think part of like if one of the things I thought about a lot is like why I'm doing this. Like why are you doing this to yourself? Like why are you doing this? Especially in Southern California where it became a little less romantic and a little bit more kind of day-to-day grind. And I I don't know. Maybe I have a chip on my shoulder from maybe not doing certain things when I was younger or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think... One of yeah, one of the things that came up a lot was just like self criticism because like you don't have anyone to talk to, bounce any ideas off of, so you kind of start to self critique your own life. Um, another thing that came up was just um, conversate. Like it sounds silly, but like conversations with nature on a certain level. Um, like I would in Northern California, I would I saw a bunch of mola mola like sunfish. And I'd always, and it was always seemed to be like right around lunchtime. It was almost like they came up. I actually don't know the biology behind mola mola, but it seemed like they would come up as the sun was rising, you know? And so I, I'd see them. There was like three or four lunches where I pulled up next to a mola mola on the surface and like ate my lunch next to this thing. Um, so I, yeah, I guess self like being self-critical was something like a theme, like in my head. And then also just this like, much deeper kind of quiet um, connection with like when you don't have people, you kind of like start examining the critters around you a lot closer and being bored in nature, I think is one of the most incredible things ever. I mean, what do you think? I, I know you hunt. Do you think being, I, I personally think that being bored in nature is one of the most incredible things that everyone should experience like just being there and not being able to do anything like you know sitting in a hunting blind or sitting somewhere and just being bored is is yeah i think it's very helpful for um 
examining your own life and and examining what you're not willing to feel um, because when you when you're not surrounded by stimulus um, and you're not constantly distracting yourself mm-hmm. um, with food, other people, sex, status, career, when you're not distracted by all that stuff, I think that your mind goes to the place that you need to really think about more and more. Um, that that one important place, whatever it is, maybe it's your relationship with your dad, maybe it's your relationship with yourself and some aspect of um, growth that you really are unwilling to look at. I think that nature can provide that honest reflection of yourself um, in those moments of silence and, as you said, boredom. Like a lot of times we romanticize being out in nature and think that it's, you know, this great Pocahontas experience. But really a lot of times like this is fucking bored. I want I want some friends around. I like people. But if you can make it through some of that suffering, it can open you up to layers of yourself that you previously didn't know existed. Totally. Um, Yeah. I think that people also who spend a lot of time in nature, just from my observation, tend to be more relaxed about living life and a little bit more relaxed about death. And I think that if we can develop those two just skill sets and relationships with ourselves and and what this whole experience, this whole temporary experience is, um, that's a worthy pursuit. Definitely. Yeah. I think. I think you hit it right on the head like that, you know, people that do spend that time, you can tell, like you can, you can there's notice a, there's a centeredness. There's a, yeah. And a really interesting, I, I did a lot of writing on the trip and <clears throat> one of the things that, one of the moments that really struck me about that, that boredom piece was I was in Point Arena. I was actually camped just, um, up from the pier there, like up around the corner and I was all ready to go. I was like, all right, I'm going to do like 30 miles this day and I'm going to go for it. I'm going to get out. So I wake up at like 630 or whatever and look out my tent. And I didn't think about the low tide. I'd come in on high tide and it was just like 120 yards of tide pools, like rock. So I couldn't launch my kayak like at all. I mean, unless I wanted to drag it like I did have wheels, but it wouldn't have it wouldn't have. um it wouldn't have worked um, to get through these tide pools. And I could have like dinged up my boat. So I'm like sitting there like, wow, I have to wait till high tide to launch. Like there's no other option. And I remember that day and I hadn't really, that was still early on in the trip where I, I was really stoked, but also like very focused. And, and I just had to have like a morning where I didn't get started till 12. And I just went out and I like looked I just looked at these tide pools and I went searching for like a little abalone in a crack or something. And I looked and looked and looked and I finally found like this little seven inch, actually it was, it's not little, but like a seven inch ab. Like I was just so stoked that I, you know, found this ab in a tide pool and I'm looking at, you know, the turban snails and the, you know, little, I killed a couple, (laughs) um, purple urchins. Just nice. out of hate, no. Um, <laughs> just out of your duty to mother. Earth. Yeah. Um, but I just remember that, and you know, the tide eventually filled in and around like 1230, I took off and it like filled in. I just kind of 
grazed right over the tide pools and made it out and it was chill. Um, but that was like a really interesting, that morning I was like all hyped and like I had this whole goal set in mind with 30 miles and this, and I left it 1230, had the most beautiful day of my trip and, um, only did like 15 miles, but ended somewhere super beautiful and like, couldn't have been more stoked. Wow. And that was just a little, like a little, I think nature was kind of like, this doesn't need to be about a goal. This doesn't need to be about, you know, Rushing like why, why, yeah, like yeah. why is this about your journey? Like, yeah. take a moment and look at the tide pools. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, you and I, I think, have similar makeups where we're probably pretty good at uh, making it through suffering and like pushing forward, but have a hard time with the slowness and the silence. Yeah. Um, about a year and a half ago, I snapped my arm real bad, um, kite surfing, and then I got surgery. And then for that month after the surgery, I couldn't really write on the computer, which is a big part of my job. Um, so I decided to do a week-long silent meditation retreat uh, at Mount Madonna with this guy named Adi Ashanti. And that was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. It was totally silent? Totally silent for a week, uh, meditating for roughly eight hours a day with small breaks. Oh. And uh, so you, you wake up in the morning at 6 a.m., meditate for an hour, small break, meditate for another hour, breakfast, meditate for another like hour or two. I mean, it's it's all day long. And then in the evenings, Adi Ashanti would do uh, what are called satsangs where he gives a, a little talk, but you're silent the whole time. Um, and that experience was more helpful for me um, than any psychedelic I've ever tried. And I felt that forcing myself to just sit and be bored a lot of the time and constantly get just real just realize how distracted my mind is for most of the time in life and to force myself to come back to a simple, goal like focusing on your breath for a long period of time um it's it's like training a muscle that you don't know needs to be trained um i recommend silent meditation that's that's crazy dude i recommend it to everyone because it's so slow man i think that were you you sitting the whole time or do you like walk like you can walk in the uh, during breaks and i was really happy about that that i could do um runs and workouts every day and it was up in the um the redwood forest so it's really beautiful place called mount madonna um so i was really grateful that i could get that exercise in some of the more traditional vipassana retreats don't allow any exercise because they say that it's a a type of escaping from the moment which it totally is yeah so is food i would have my meal and i'd be like oh salad this tastes so good something different (laughs) i I mean it's it's really uh it's kind of ineffable to describe how profound it is but like there was a uh an experience i had where there was this river that was flowing through the redwoods and i was out on this run and um i i had my arm in a a removable cast and the the stitches had healed um but it was still pretty swollen and i took my arm out of the cast and i put it in this little pool and this was in winter so it was ice cold river and i've never felt a the raw sensation of cold as deeply and clearly as i did in that moment 
I don't know how else to put it, but it's just another level of feeling that is undistracted, Mm -hmm. undistracted. And to be able to sit in that discomfort and that raw sensation is um, as worthy of any, it's as, as powerful as any experience I've ever had in my life. Yeah. Like when you um, also, I feel like if it was in a cast too, just that like constant, itch itch yeah whatever that yeah. must have been crazy yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's jedi training yeah it's straight up jedi training it is if you're willing to sit with the discomfort of the moment that's like when, when i meet those people and some of them i've you know i've had them on my podcast i'm like wow you're you know older than me and you've really s- spent the time to work out your mind and work out what you're going to focus your attention on and work through discomfort and sit in that moment and i'm like i want to be like you a lot of them are the ones that have taken that time for empty space to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do um, we've been going for a while. This is an awesome conversation. I really enjoyed uh, re- talking with you. Um, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me on by the way. Stoked. Super stoked. To yeah. Be here. This is great. Yeah. Um, is uh, you, you mentioned earlier that there was some stuff when you were a kid that you that you didn't take advantage of like a situation mm-hmm. or opportunity that you felt like this maybe was uh trying to make up for is there anything that you were thinking about specifically i think yeah i guess so i was actually on the google earth surf challenge um, you mentioned that yeah um don't wanna, we don't need to go too deep into that cuz i mean but i was about 12 when that happened and I just so was you surrounded. did you fi- find the wave? I found the wave and submitted it through, with my dad's. Which name. one was this? Um, this was back in twenty. It was the one in twenty twelve. I think there was only two. There was like skeleton. Is it the Mexico the, one? Yeah. Oh, so yeah. you found that wave? Yeah. I don't, right. Don't want, don't want to talk about too much. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. No, um, I, I know it is a pretty I, special spot. I know where it is, but yeah. we, we can talk about it after the yeah. Once we're off air. Yeah, it's. But so, you found that wave on Google Earth and yeah. then, uh, and then submitted submitted it to him. Yeah. Okay. And. It was really, I was so... And you went, this, did you go with like Cali Carranza and uh, some of the It was the uh, with Diego Cadena. Diego, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, guys. and Greg Long. Right. right. Ricky Whitlock, Sam Hammer, um, DJ Strantz was the photographer. Classic, yeah. So it's just solid trip and... You were 12. And I was 12. And I was with my dad and my dad was such like, my dad was the man. I mean, my dad was like there and he made sure I felt like comfortable. He didn't push me. Like he was pushing me, but he also wasn't like, Steve, this is like the only time you'll ever have experience if you don't like man up right now. Like, you know, he was very much like, do what you want to do. Like, just let's just enjoy this trip together as like a father and son. We're with these crazy, you know, athletes. And, um, and I just remember I, so I sat on the, like, I didn't necessarily like not surf, but I just like sat on the inside and just didn't go charge. And then also later in that trip, I had a chance to spearfish and that was the blue, like, so I, and I didn't take that opportunity and it, it, it's less about the trip, I guess, that like bugged me, but more about like the deep seated fear I had like of the ocean, I guess. And like, why, why was I afraid of deep water? Why was I afraid of this? Why wasn't I able to go and t- take off on a bomb with Greg, Greg Long? Like, when am I ever going to get that experience? And I was young. You can't necessarily process that the same let's as like let's say as like a 16 year old i probably would have gone out and surfed with greg long you know um and those and all those guys and 
or spearfish DJ Strunz. Um, those would have been incredible experiences. And I still had that, that trip was still wild. It was like the, the most crazy thing ever. But I do like the following years, I kind of like went back to that. Like, why was I afraid? Why, why was I afraid? Like, what, what is it about the ocean? And I, that's, that like instills so much fear. And I, and I didn't know. And so when I got into diving, that was one of the things that I, I did it almost just to like try to confront that a little bit was like, go out in water. You can't see the bottom and take a drop in 10 foot murky water and like look for rockfish. Um, or abalone or whatever. And that was like one of the things where I was trying to confront that. Um, but yeah, so this trip was one of those things where I wanted without too much preparation, without too much, I just wanted to get myself into something that like allowed me to fully confront, I guess. That fear. That fear. And also just like, you know, confront California. It was something, you know, you can, I've drove it so many times and, it's always amazing, but I just wanted to like, it has an aura about it. California has an aura about it. And I, um, and it's wild. It's it's incredibly wild. wild. People don't think about when they, Oh, California, Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, you know, LA, this is the Hollywood side. Yeah. This (laughs) manicured state, but really, I mean, people don't realize how much public land we have here, how much amazing wild places we still have and how lucky we are that we have protected areas Mm -hmm. and have developed this state. That's I think the sixth largest economy in the world, but still have these open spaces I mean, you look at other places, a lot of other places around the world have just let industry run wild. East Coast. Yeah, there's been no protection, and then these places are gone. So to be able to go out and experience them and celebrate them by putting yourself up against, you know, out into the wild, I think is one of the the best ways that we can keep these spaces open. Absolutely. So I... um Graduated with a degree in anthropology and geography. Um, and that's how I, you found Google Earth. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, dirty dog. <laughs> the, um, I, one of the, 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 all other things about this trip going into it before that kind of like sparked the passion and also the drive to want to do it, um, is on some level, and I have so much, I, I have, I want to just say that I have so much respect for the indigenous people of, um, California. It's, there was 52 language groups, you know, distinct tribes here um, upon contact. Um, that's more than like that um, amount of languages and, and individual tribes is more than any other part of uh, the U.S. So California just had this amazing patchwork of indigenous tribes. There were 52 separate native languages in, in California, in California alone. alone. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy, right? And... So I, another aspect of like why I wanted to do this was to like see it from the, you know from the water at least in, and especially in Northern California, see it the way it was seen back then. You know, not from a boat with a motor, not from along the road, but see like looking up at these cliffs the way um, indigenous people peoples might have done. And there is actually increasing evidence, and a lot of people are behind it in the archaeological community that the first people to actually enter the California came down along the coast. Originally, it was believed that they came across the Bering Strait land bridge around 14,000, 
And those people, like they call them, it's like the Clovis culture is like, it was paleo Indians. But there's been a lot of, a lot of evidence to say that they actually came down along the coast in and in, in watercraft, which is, I mean, it's not a conspiracy theory. I mean, there's like significant evidence to prove that. There is a site in Southern Chile um, called Mesa Verde and it's dated, it's accurately dated um, there's some dates that hover around on either end of the spectrum, but it's well um, agreed upon that that site is was occupied 14,500 years ago. So someone had to make it down there 14,500 years ago. And they they really think now that a lot of the, like this first Paleo-Indian migration was actually also along- using REI dry bags and Hobie kayaks and, and Hobie kayaks. kayaks and seven Mel dive suits. Yeah, no, uh, they so, really think. Sorry, yeah, just totally cut you by, no. cut you off on your punchline. No, that's so that um, was a really interesting. Like when I learned about that, I'm like, no way. These people were like in either dugouts, but probably more likely like Thule balsas, like like Thule reed boats coming to like you know kelp kelp paddy jumping down the coast, like living off the land. That was something that inspired me too. Like, holy moly, these people, you know, were so much gnarlier than we are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so much gnarlier than we are. I'm like out here with my Hobie kayak with, that has a rudder and my GPS and all this. And I'm barely making it down California. You know, I'm freaking using a tent stake to hold my rudder in place. Like, these people, they're... One of the things, there's so many people live right along the coast, right? Um, But I think that that connection, like there's something, there's a difference between living um, near the coast and living like by the coast in the sense that like every day you're going down to the water and collecting, you know, shellfish and rockfish and whatever. And, um, you know, I know you surf a lot and like people that do surf and dive and whatever, they have like, they still have that a little bit, you know, like that living by the coast, living. But um, I think that's been lost a lot in California. You yeah. go down to Malibu and these people live, their houses touch the water and they don't live in those houses. They're like their secondary houses. And those houses, when I pass Malibu, those probably houses are all like $3 million, $5 million, $10 million. They're all falling into the sea. And you know what? I don't care how much many times you can retrofit your house. If you don't, con- you, you ain't know, gonna conf- stop the ocean. You ain't gonna stop the ocean, and if you don't confront climate change, you're not going to. Um, your that, your house, your five million dollar house is worth nothing. Yeah, you know, in the grand scheme. Yeah. Well, hey, man, um, I'm really stoked to have had this conversation. It was hugely inspiring to me, and uh, it's making me want to go out on a an adventure that I'm not sure I can accomplish. <laughs> Honestly, I think that that doing shit that you aren't sure you're going to be able to pull off and do it out in nature and <clears throat> out in the ocean is, is one of the greatest ways to live. So congratulations yeah. on Thank you. completing the journey, you. man. <laughs> I'm so and, stoked to be on here. Yeah. And for anyone that is thinking like, you know, there's no harm in going big to start off. Like, you know, there is something to be said about starting small, but if you really have a dream and you want to manifest it, just like, if anyone is interested in doing something like this, are you open to giving them tips or is there a better way? Are, are you open to being contacted? Is the sure, question. Yeah, for sure. What's the best way that people can get in touch with you? Um, well, if um, 
as far as like my personal um sense uh you can contact me um I guess through Instagram. Instagram. What's um, your What's your Instagram? Uh, slightly underscore Stevo is like my Instagram. Okay, I'll link and to it in the show notes below. Awesome. And then if and if you are um, someone that's super passionate about um, marine biology and um, the kelp forest and want to get in contact with us, um, our project's just getting off the ground and we'd love to hear from people. So that's the last forests at gmail.com. So, heck yeah, man! This is yeah. a blast. Thank you so much, Kyle. Can't wait to see the next adventure. Yeah. Cheers. I'm going to play you out with a song called Neighbors Jam by Village of Spaces. I met the guy who is in this band at a Christmas party in Santa Cruz. He was a cool dude. We were chatting, and he offered me some of his music. And then I listened to the music, and I was like, wow, this is really good. So if you want to listen to more of it, you can click the link below this episode, and it'll take you to their Bandcamp page. And if you're a musician and you want to send me some tunes, Email it over. Email it to info at kyle.surf, and uh, I'll ensure that it gets to me. You can also send those voice memos to info at kyle.surf. Just record like a minute of audio. Don't overthink it on your phone. Like, hey, what's up? I'm this person living this life and want to say hi to all the listeners. Uh, And then email it to info at kyle.surf, and I'll play it at the beginning of the show. Thank you to everyone who donates to this podcast on Patreon. Seriously, it means a huge amount. $1, $5, $10, the equivalent of a cup of coffee, as I see, as I say, as I say, as I say so so often, it really does add up and allows me to organize these podcasts every single week. And I've got some good ones coming up. I've been banking some solid, some solid audio. So stay tuned for that. But until then, um, you can sign up for my newsletter if you want to hear from me more often. Uh, My newsletter is like a, it's usually a short story that I write. And uh, it's a good way for me to flex my creative writing muscle. Put a smile on your face. And sometimes there's deals and offers that you can't get anywhere else. So if you want to do that, click the link below or go to my website, kyle.surf. Finally, mega high five to Santa Cruz Medicinals who sponsor all these podcasts. Head over to scmedicinals.com, type in the code name Kyle10 and get 10% off your CBD. Until next time, my friends, get out in the ocean, be safe. And give someone a high five and sit back, relax, and enjoy this song called Neighbor's Jam by Village of Spaces. See you soon. i
was a sweet, sweet chance.